A classic World Cup final was almost ruined. I'll explain why as Argentina outlasts France as they are the 2022 Cup champs. A wild NFL Saturday was capped off by an even wilder Sunday as there's lots of intrigue to the AFC and NFC playoff picture. The Yankees add a key starter to their rotation while losing an outfielder in the process and Dansby Swanson finds a new address. The NHL is considering an 84-game schedule. Anthony Davis is on the shelf again. Psyched and ready to go as I have the first of two gifts to put under your tree this week. You want sports talk? I have plenty of it. It's all coming up. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You could also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. Christmas week has arrived, so let's decorate the sports tree with all the trimmings, put up the bright lights, and prepare for a festive podcast with tons to get into, as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. Quite a bit to get into here as we lead into all the festivities regarding what Christmas is about, and we can talk about how it's been bastardized and how it's commercial, so on and so forth, and rightfully so. But now that we will all get together, family, friends, travel, places to go, people to see, but in the middle of all that, a lot of sports to get to, and who would have thought... That in the almost five years that I've been doing this podcast, that I'm going to start off with the World Cup, and what took place yesterday in Qatar, and with all the pomp and circumstance of Argentina and France, two of the sports' biggest, not rivals, but opponents, no surprise that either one of these two teams were here to face off against one another for a World Cup championship. And the one thing I will say before I get into the match and delve into certain angles, storylines, etc. Although it went to penalty kicks and everybody knows how I feel about that. And thankfully that the right team won. Because as I mentioned at the very top, 
it would have been ruined, I thought, in my opinion, if France would have won this tournament. Not to say that they were not deserving. Not to say that they didn't belong. We all know that they won four years ago and here they are on this stage yet again for the chance to be back-to-back. But the right team won and I thought the better team of the day won. And let's break it all down. Let's get into it so the soccer fan could get at me for those on TikTok especially saying that, oh, this is the first soccer match he's ever watched. Well, that's not absolutely true. But then again, I could probably count on one hand how many soccer matches that I've watched and really delved into, rolled up my sleeves to get a complete analysis on. And this was one of them. So I'm not going to front. Nobody's going to confuse me of one of the top soccer analysts out there or aficionados to break it all down from soup to nuts. But I've watched sports long enough and could see with my own eyes what took place, what was good, what was bad. And I understand a lot of it is opinion-based when it comes to the extra time, which obviously I'm going to get to. But with that being said, once Argentina went up 2-love early on, or 2-0 as they say in soccer, Messi gets the penalty kick to get the scoring on the board. And then later on on that beautiful play that was set up by Lionel Messi, wasn't a give and go, but just a beautiful pass across to the striker that was streaking on the left side to get the goal at 2 nothing there in the 31st minute and you see the fans in the stands even starting to cry and I thought to myself geez there's still a whole match to go that's like if you're a Colt fan and obviously I'll get to that later on that's like if you're a Colt fan playing a meaningful game and you have 33 nothing there at the half and you have tears going down your eyes thinking that oh we're gonna win this game and we all know what happened there if you didn't pay attention on Saturday the turn of events in Minnesota. But that's for the NFL, and I'll get to that next. But even at 2-0, and as you get into the second half, France had not played well, did not have a lot of scoring opportunities. In fact, think about this. When they got their second goal off a beautiful play by Mbappe, that was still the second shot on goal and no saves for the goaltender Martinez up until that point. So when Mbappe had his penalty kick, to make it 2-1 there in the, what was it, 80th minute. And then a minute 33 later, the other goal was scored there by Mbappe, which really turned things around. And for the France team to not even get a shot on goal, pretty much up until that point, just goes to show how Mbappe was neutralized. He was not even a factor in the first 75 minutes of the match. And I was thinking that this was going to be cruise control for Argentina. Maybe they got a little bit laxed. They did have their moments there where they had opportunities, but it wasn't as if they were just putting up their feet and resting on their laurels thinking that this was a foregone conclusion that they were going to be World Cup champs. But with the penalty kick there in the 80th minute, that turned everything around because then, like I mentioned, a little over 90 seconds later, Mbappe had that beautiful goal there to the left of the goal, to the right of the goalkeeper. And at that point on, that's when it was thrilling. That's when it was exciting. That was edge of your seat compelling, riveting, whatever adjective you want to use from pretty much the penalty kick on, but for sure, the turnaround from the first to the second goal and then on out was exciting as you could possibly get. And I understand the majority of these soccer matches are boring. Let's not front soccer fans. I get it that not every match could be a nail-biter, a white-knuckler type of game. You did get it here in this World Cup final to where you go into the extra time And even in the extra time, and here's problem number one, this is where I feel, and everybody knows I'm a traditionalist, I'm a purist, and I get it, soccer's been played like this forever, understood, 
But in a championship match, forget about all the matches that preceded it, even the semifinals for that matter, and even the semifinals, it could be an argument as to whether or not they should have in the extra time a sudden death overtime. But here, where it's tied to two, and now you have the extra time, first goal, that's the game. That's the match. Because I don't want to hear that with the penalty kicks, it makes it that much more exciting, compelling, whatever you want to use. To me, it takes all the air out of the balloon. But I'll get to that in a minute. So when Lionel Messi scores to make it 3-2, and I know it was close whether or not it was going to be offside, the play was onside, but Messi, Johnny on the spot after the one shot, and then of course it didn't go to the back of the net as, as was said by the play-by-play commentator. The French player was at the back of the net trying to stop it, but he was so far past the goal line that obviously it was a goal. A blind man could see that. And at 3-2, you're thinking Argentina's going to do whatever it takes to sort this game away. We saw what happened early in the tournament. I get it, two separate teams with Brazil and Croatia, but even as the extra time was rolling and Argentina was doing whatever it can to stall to make the time elapse as fast as it possibly can kicking the ball into the stands which was inexcusable how is there not a foul there how is there not some sort of penalty or delay a game that's a farce that's a complete joke when you see something like that happen and there's no penalty involved but when the French had an opportunity there with the penalty kick and this is a rule that I don't like and again I understand the purist and the traditionalist is going to say, Jay Reels, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. But when Mbappe had the penalty kick there to tie it, and I understand that the player can't open his body up, I understand his elbow was out 100%. But it wasn't as if he was looking like he was on a pogo stick with his arms wide and his legs looking like he was a stick figure trying to do whatever it takes to block the ball. And let's say if the ball hit him square in the face or even worse, in the nuts. And I get it that you can't have your arms spread out or your legs or anything like that. Understood. But as he was turning, and I get it, his elbow was out, so it's going to look like he opened up to try to do whatever it takes to block a ball. But I could see if it hit off his hand. I could see if it he was deliberately trying to just stretch out as much as he can to do whatever it takes to block the ball. Then I could see where the penalty kick is awarded. But to me, ah. I didn't like that call and obviously that set up the tie where Mbappe got it into the net and that was the one play where I believe the goalkeeper had a finger on it. So now you have a scenario where it's tied at three. To me, the game should have been over after the messy goal in extra time and then the play of the game when you really think about it was just a few minutes later in the 123rd minute where the striker had a clear shot on net where the goaltender Martinez had a sprawling stretch kick save and if that ball would have made it to the back of the net forget about it Argentina would be sick for the next four years because for them to for all intents and purposes think that you had the game salted away at 3-2 then you had the penalty kick to tie the game and then that save right there which is a save that Martinez is going to not have to buy a meal a beer drink you name it, for as long as he's alive in Argentina because that was one that, of course, a lot of people are going to pay attention to, but it gets forgotten because once you get to the penalty kicks, it's almost as if the save never happened. And this is why I feel that it should be sudden death once you get to the extra time. And now as you get to the penalty kicks, 
You had the scenario where Mbappe got the first one and then Messi, and this is why the penalty kicks, as I said before, takes all the air out of the balloon. Did you see Lionel Messi's penalty kick? That was what we call back in the day, especially in the game of hockey, that was a label reader. Meaning that he kicked the ball so soft that the goalie, who obviously committed one way and the ball went the other, but it was so slow to get to the goal line and obviously to the back of the net that you could have read the logo or the maker of the ball on the ball itself because that's how slow it was to get through the goal line to the back of the net. And then France has an opportunity to where the goalkeeper makes a save. The next French player shoots it wide. And with all their opportunities that Argentina had, they were able to convert and they're your champs. And to me, one more time, it just sucked the life out of the game. And I understand that I'm a newbie to this. Although going way back, I've been arguing and bitching and moaning about how the final game in particular should not come down to penalty kicks. Why doesn't that happen in the NHL? I'm just going to use hockey because hockey is the only sport that obviously is timed and it is sudden death, but it could go 100 overtimes. And you're not going to see a shootout there. NBA, they're not going to get to a three-point contest if it's tied after, let's say, one overtime or Major League Baseball. Oh, it's in the 10th inning. All right, let's go to home run derby to see who's going to be a World Series winner. Okay, but this sport should allow just a running time and have whatever break it is, whether it's after every 30 minutes to have a 10-minute break. They should substitute a lot more, maybe even take a couple of players off the team, as said by my guy, John Irving, who is a longtime soccer fan. He's been following the sports as he's a boy, so I trust his opinion on, in this particular instance, to where the game in a championship setting gets into the extra time where it should just be sudden death. And if it's not concluded in the first 30 minutes of the extra time, then you go another 30 minutes and so on until somebody either makes a mistake, you get the bounce of a ball, and I don't want to hear, oh, well, these guys are going to be tired. Oh, you can't run these guys ragged. That's what makes this compelling. Who's going to be tired? Who's going to make the mistake? Did everybody see Jimmy Butler in an NBA final two years ago in the bubble, I might add, when he was keeled over the side rail, exhausted, As the game was into overtime, that was the classic game five between the Lakers and Heat. How, and I believe that was double overtime. Yeah. It didn't get to three-point shooting contest or who's going to make 10 free throws in a row. No. This is why we want sports. Competition. That one mistake, that one error, if a player is trailing behind. All right, he may be just dead tired. But guess what? You still got to play it out. And if he's going to be the GOAT, so be it. We've seen it throughout all of competition from the beginning of time. Why should it change, especially when it comes to a World Cup, to hoist it over your head for the next four years to where, okay, now let's resort to penalty kicks. That's my argument, people. And I'm not going to belabor it. I know I've talked about it a zillion times. A couple other things I want to get into. I talked to my friend one more time, John Irving. I even asked him on Saturday. As I hung out with him, I asked him. I said, is Lionel Messi, whether he wins or does not win the World Cup here, is he an immortal not saying all-time great. All-time great is all-time great. Immortal is Jordan. Babe Ruth, Gretzky, Joe Montana, Tom Brady. Those are immortal players. Remembered forever. 
And I asked him that. Is Messi an immortal? He said yes. And I said, okay, obviously I'm going to take his word for it. But now that he has the cherry on top, winning his first ever World Cup and where he had two goals in and seven for the entire tournament, if he was not, or let's say if he wasn't immortal, this obviously cements it. No ifs, ands, buts about it. And he actually said that he's not going to retire from the Argentina team, which I believe if he were to play in the next four years, he'll be 39 years of age. So Messi, phenomenal performance. There isn't any more accolades that you could put next to his name. Just a tremendous job. As far, and he also won, by the way, the MVP or the best player as he gets the golden ball. Now the... Golden boot goes to Mbappe. I'll get to him in a minute because I want to just wrap up the Argentina aspect of this. The goaltender who was phenomenal, Martinez. I understand he didn't see a lot of action there as I talked about a little while ago. But he made that unbelievable save which I'm sure that's going to be a mural or I'm sure a big giant billboard in Argentina somewhere for years to come because think about it. That was the biggest play of the game. That ball goes in the net. France is the winner. That was in the 123rd minute. In the 124th minute, that's when you went to penalty kicks. So as much as the penalty kicks that were made by Argentina, as huge as that was, and even the messy goal at the start of the extra time, that save was it. Remembered forever. And Martinez, who acted like a jerk afterwards as he got the Golden Glove Award for best goalkeeper, and what he did, he put it toward his crotch. Obviously, that was just beyond stupid, dumb. I don't know why he did that. But you got to give it up. He made the save of a lifetime. And what could, I mean, what more can you say? The guy was just phenomenal in a big spot. And he needed to come up huge. And he certainly did. And then as far as Mbappe in France, I get it. They won four years ago. If you're a fan of the French or from that region, from that country, of course, you're going to be sick knowing that you were that close. Not only with that save that was made there by Martinez, but just knowing that you were down 2-0. You had the two goals. And Bobby, who got the hat-trick in the game, two of them on penalty kicks. And I understand that penalty kicks, it's 50-50. And I know I teased that on my TikTok feed where I said, come on, it's going to come down to this. Anybody can make a penalty kick. As evidenced by what Lionel Messi did with the label reader. But, and Bobby, you got to give it up. When he had to turn it on, that's when he, he was at his best. He was invisible for the first two-thirds of the match. I don't care if you're the biggest soccer fan in the world or the biggest Mbappe fan. Was the man's name even called throughout the first 70 minutes of the match? But he rose to the occasion. What big players and great players do is that he was able to get his team back in the game, tied the game, and even got the first goal in the penalty kick scenario at the very end. He couldn't ask for anything more from Mbappe in this game. And France, they'll be fine. I would think that they're going to be a favorite. I don't know if they have any kind of early, which is way too early to even think about this. We've still got another three and a half years to go considering the World Cup will take place, I believe, back into its normal slot, whether it's in May, late May or in the early part of June, which will be now stateside and here in North America. But I would think France, they're going to be fine in the next four years. Argentina, the same, although Messi's going to be four years older or just about four years, depending on when his birthday is. And I will say this, it was epic, the ending, it was classic, you couldn't ask for anything more, I don't know what the rating was, I get it that the first 60-65 minutes of the match, 
I'm sure everybody that was watching thought that Argentina was going to run away with it. That it was going to be just a slam dunk that Argentina was just going to be your World Cup champ. And not to say that it wasn't compelling, exciting, all those things leading up to the penalty kick, the first one there by Mbappe to make it 2-1. But I'm thinking that, oh, this game is going to be over. And even if they had the penalty kick, you still got to get the equalizer. And because of the minute 33 turnaround that they were able to tie it within that time frame, that's when the game really took off. And as we saw, as classic as a final, now I get it. A lot of people are saying that today. Oh, the best World Cup final. I would say it was the best World Cup final from the 79th minute on. And this is from someone that hasn't watched a lot of World Cup finals. Hand raised high in the air. Call it as I see it. But let's be fair here. Was the game a nail-biter from start to finish? Was it that just over-the-top excitement, craziness, edge-of-your-seat, nail-biter, just one of the all-time classics from start to finish? I can't say that that's the case. And I understand that's what the narrative is going to be from a lot of the soccer aficionados and the experts. They're going to say, oh, this is... They can say it's the best World Cup as far as those final 40 minutes of the match. They can say that without question. But the game overall, I would say not. But it's a classic nevertheless. And Argentina, congratulations to what they did. And just a great way to close it out. Couldn't have it any other way than what you saw there yesterday, depending on where you're watching it here, obviously in the Northeast sometime after 12 noon. Now as I take off the soccer cleats, put on the football cleats, helmet, shoulder pads to get into what was probably the best NFL weekend that we've seen all year. Just wacky games, compelling games, epic comebacks, last second heroics, last second blunders. Uh, You had it all here in this past week. Now you have a lot of different angles here when it comes to the postseason with certain teams Some that have gotten a little bit of separation. Others that are hanging by their fingernails. And another one that was two, three weeks ago you wouldn't even ever imagine. And I talked about it a bit last week and I'll get to in a minute. But before I break it all down, my winners and losers of the week. Winner number one, how could you not say the Minnesota Vikings? Because with the Niners beating the Seahawks on Thursday night and that was a game where the Seahawks If they were going to stay relevant, especially in the NFC West, although they had no shot of winning the division, but they had to win that game. Yeah, they tacked on a touchdown late, but the Niners were pretty much in cruise control. Brock Purdy played well, managed the game, but for the Niners to win and knowing that if the Vikings lost, the Niners would have the two-seed in the NFC, which would have been just curtains, if you ask me, for the Vikings. And as it was on Saturday, I was actually at the UBS Arena where the Islanders play, And I had gotten a message on one of my social media accounts where somebody had written to me saying that it was 33-0 Colts at the half. What were my thoughts? And I had to even triple check that because to me that was unfathomable to think that the Colts on the road in Minnesota, not to say that that's Lambeau or a hostile environment to say the least, but for the Colts to be up 33-0, it... Just blew my mind to think that the Vikings were going to melt down here and go meekly into the night to the point where they will entrench themselves in the three seed. And chances are, may or may not even get out of the wild card round. And if they did, they'd have to travel to San Francisco. 
But then what happened? The most unlikeliest scenario you could ever imagine. The biggest comeback in NFL history. Regular season or postseason. And to think, Matt Ryan is part of two of the biggest epic collapses in the history of the sport. One in the Super Bowl, we all know 28-3 to the Patriots. And then now, 33-0 to where the Colts had a chance to ice the game away and give it up to Jeff Saturday. I get it. Fourth and one at the Viking 36. They went for it. They got stopped. The next play, Dalvin Cook goes for a 64-yard touchdown connection from Kirk Cousins. And that was the biggest play of the game. Because if the Colts got a first down there, and in all likelihood, they would have won the game. So talk about the Vikings getting two gifts from the gods. Think about this. If Josh Allen didn't fumble in the end zone in Buffalo a few weeks back, and then for Saturday to go for it and get stopped, and then the next become a touchdown to where they tied the game, and then with three seconds left, Greg Joseph wins it with a field goal, 39-36. Just an improbable, and you can't even imagine... A season-saving game for the Vikings. And granted, there's still three games to go. And who knows if they're going to hang on to that two seed. But at least for this week, they were able to come back from the dead. Win a game that they had zero business of winning. And they still have that two seed, 11-3 and in the NFC. They're my winner number one. Winner number two, I'm going to give it up to the New York Giants. And I understand that goal line stand, which was enormous. That was obviously what sealed the... Deal for the Giants winning that game. You could certainly argue if you're a Commander fan how Curtis Samuel was just mugged in the end zone. Contact all over the place. People could say there was pass interference, but I would say illegal contact because the defensive back there just mugged them throughout that whole play and the officials just overlooked that. But the Giants with a fumble recovery by Kayvon Thibodeau early in the game and then the long drive, 18 play, 97 yards, which was... Tacked on by a Saquon Barkley touchdown, which punctuated it. And the Giants, who a lot of people thought that the season was slipping through their hands with some bad losses at home to Detroit. Of course, the tie that we saw against the Commanders just two weeks ago at the Meadowlands last week, getting embarrassed by the Eagles. And for them to win, they put themselves in good position in the NFC to make it to the playoffs where the commanders still have a good shot based on that tie and that's going to help them in the long run but still with a game that they have to go to San Francisco which is not going to be easy and that could really turn the dynamic in the NFC as far as what's going to take place and what we'll get into just in a matter of minutes but I give it up for the Giants they are my winner number two loser number one And I don't know if Bill Belichick was on that sideline or maybe the ghosts of Dick McPherson's past. Look it up, Patriot fans or NFL fans. And for whatever the reason, you know Bill Belichick, that plane ride must have been as quiet as a mouse in church. And that was one where we have never seen, as long as I'm alive and I'm sure plenty of NFL fans who have watched a ton of more NFL games and have a lot more years of watching football than I have, Have never seen a game end like that. For the Patriots, who are a team that's also hanging on by their playoff lives there in the AFC, and for the game to be tied at that point, and granted that the touchdown to tie the game was controversial because I thought that the receiver who caught the ball there, Keelan Cole, he was out of bounds. I don't know what the replay showed, and again, I didn't watch this in live time just based on the replays that I saw, 
But how that was not overturned is beyond me. I thought that he was out of bounds. That shouldn't have counted. At that point, it would have been third and 10, and who knows how the game would have unfolded from that point. But for the Patriots, where they needed a field goal, and I get it that handoff from Andre Stevenson, he's going up there to the right sideline, then he tried to do the flea flicker, he tried to lateral the ball, then next thing you know, Jacoby Myers does the same thing where he goes well across the field, and then Chandler Jones, the expatriate, catches it, bulldozes Mac Jones, and just stumbles into the end zone in the most unlikeliest 30-24 to victory. And the Patriots, who had a feel-good game the other night in Arizona, winning on Monday night, and maybe they could turn their fortunes around, especially with the way the schedule breaks, because they have to play Cincinnati on Christmas Eve. They have Miami coming into their building, and then they got over to Buffalo. So this was a game that if they were going to stay alive, at least for another week, they needed this game in the worst way. And what did they do? Jacoby Myers put a bow on it and sent a Christmas gift to the Raiders. Inexplicable. I've never seen anything like that. And I don't know if I'll ever see anything like that. Especially at the end of a game. Last play of the game. Just pathetic. And my other loser, I'm going to give it to this team. They may not deserve it, but the only reason why I'm going to say they do is because now, talk about a season that is starting to shrink right in front of them. I'm going to give it to the Tennessee Titans. And I understand that they were on the road, and I get it that the Chargers have played well. But when you're trailing in the game 14-7, and you get a touchdown with, what was it, 48 seconds to go in the game, and they tie the game at 14, and I understand that even with however many timeouts were left there for the Chargers, and for 48 seconds, if they could just keep the Chargers at bay and somehow maybe get the ball in overtime and see if they could leave out of L.A. with a win, knowing that the Jaguars beat the Cowboys in comeback fashion, and I'll get to that next. But the Titans, who were 7-3, and three, and as we talked about weeks ago, that there was no way, shape, or form that they were going to spit up this division. As bad as the Texans are, as bad as the Colts have been, and then you have the scenario where Jacksonville's been up and down, but now they're trending north. And for the Titans... And it's not as if they're the first and certainly will be the last team that's going to give up yards and play that prevent defense and try not to hang on so they could get into overtime. But for them to let Herbert and company come down the field in 44 seconds to set themselves up for a 43-yard field goal to win the game, and now they're just one game ahead of Jacksonville with three to go. And their schedule is a little tricky. They do have the Texans at home. Which, who knows what Tennessee team we're going to see. Then they play Dallas on a Thursday night before having to go to Jacksonville. Which could be for the AFC South. And remember, Jacksonville beat Tennessee just last week. And with Jacksonville winning at home against Dallas yesterday to where they were down, I believe, 17-0 and 27-10. And that Cowboy defense, as we all know, is their strength. And even though Micah Parsons had a sack in the game, and we know about their secondary and Demarcus Lawrence, etc., but they were invisible as they couldn't slow down the Jaguar offense. Who would have thought I'd say that in one sentence? The Jaguars chipped away, came back, chipped away. Dak Prescott threw a terrible interception, I believe at 27-24, where they were able to then take the lead at that point. 
34-27, and then the Cowboys tacked on a touchdown before a last-second field goal that pushed the game into overtime, and then Dak throws a pick-six there to ice the game for the Jaguars to put them a game closer in the top of the AFC South, and the Cowboys, that's just a bad loss, and now they're going to be entrenched in the five-seed. Chances are it could be against Tampa, or who knows? It could be maybe New Orleans, Atlanta, Carolina, although Carolina had a bad loss yesterday to Pittsburgh, which I won't really delve into that much. In fact, Carolina had an opportunity, and I think out of all the teams in the division, Carolina had the best shot because they beat Tampa earlier this year. And by them losing yesterday and with Tampa losing, you have a scenario to where the Bucks are still in first place, even at 6-8, and eight, but now the Panthers are 4-9, and nine, or maybe they're 4-10 and 10 right now. I have to double-check that. But with Tampa beating Atlanta earlier this year and with the Buccaneers sweeping the Saints, tiebreakers are out of the question for those two teams, where Carolina was the only true team that had an opportunity to maybe win the division. And as it's playing out, they still can win a division. But right now, when you look at their standings, though, they're 5-9. and nine. Forgive me. I didn't say, I said 4-10. and ten. If they would have won yesterday, they would have been in a deadlock tie and had a half game up on the Buccaneers. But my mistake there, they're one game back and they're still within striking distance and have a big game against Detroit this coming week. And I'll get to the Lions in a second. But that... NFC South is a disaster. Cowboys are going to play whomever wins that division. And who knows if it's even going to be Tampa. Everybody's thinking it's going to be Tampa. And I would think at the end of the day, it's going to be the Buccaneers. But with the way they're performing, who knows? I wouldn't be surprised to see Carolina there when it's all said and done. Now, Detroit, what a turnaround that they've had. They started their season 1-6. and six, And since then, they flip-flopped that. They're 6-1, and 7-7. And, seven. and even with Seattle losing the other night, now they're tied... With the same record, but Seattle does have the tiebreaker. But remember, both of those teams are not in the top seven seeds when it comes to the NFC. Both of those teams are on the outside looking in. But Detroit goes to Carolina, which is going to be fascinating to see how they perform down the stretch. They do have a home game against Chicago before going to Green Bay to conclude their season. So I don't know if Detroit's going to run the table. I'd be shocked. The game yesterday at MetLife beating the Jets the way they did. And the Jets, I don't know why... Robert Sala saved all his timeouts. And again, I didn't really follow this closely. I was running around. I was in tune to what was going on. But I did see the final seconds to where Zach Wilson, based on his numbers, didn't seem like he played well. He threw a bad interception in the third quarter. But for Wilson, they then, what was that? I believe it was fourth and 17, that final or next to last play, which set up the 58-yard field goal. Pretty much a Hail Mary type of play where he threw it across the field was completed, first down, they had one second left on the clock, and it was controversy then because the clock went to zeros before Salah was shown that he did call a timeout, and then Greg Zerline, 58 yards, that's a tough kick outdoors in that type of weather, and sure enough, he missed it. So the Jets, they do live to see another week because of what happened with the Patriots, them losing, and again, they have the tiebreaker over the Jets right now. But they have Jacksonville coming into their building on a Thursday night, which is actually an interesting Thursday night game. Who would have thought that at the beginning of the year, Jacksonville Jets would mean something? Well, this game is going to mean a lot. As I mentioned before, if Jacksonville wins, they're that much closer to the top of the AFC South, and the Jets need to win because they're going to keep their hopes alive in the AFC. 
And remember, the Jets, after their home game here, their last two games on the road. At Seattle, who are going to be playing for their own playoff lives, and then at Miami, which we would think could be for a playoff spot. Because remember, the Jets have a tiebreaker advantage over the Dolphins, and if they are somehow, some way tied, and it could be a scenario where it, it may be a seven seed in the AFC, that's going to be a huge game. But a lot of craziness in the NFL yesterday, and that's not even, I feel like I just scratched the surface between that Dallas Jacksonville game. Of course, the game there on Saturday with the Colts and Vikings, even the Saturday night game, Miami and Buffalo, and Miami played well. They had a chance to win, but that was another one where I'm sure they're kicking themselves flying back to South Beach where they had a 29-21 lead and the Bills came down and their defense, here's one guy, I don't want to pick on him, but what has he done since he's been a member of the Miami Dolphins and that's Bradley Chubb. Now I got to look at his stats to see what he did in the game. I know since he's been a Dolphin, he's had, what, two sacks? And I'm not trying to say that this guy's had to have 100 sacks by now and he's had to be the game record that he is. And we all know that he's a pass rush specialist. So we would think that Chubb would have his fingerprints on this team knowing that the Dolphins, that having that element on their team was going to be pivotal and critical down the stretch when you're facing guys like Josh Allen, when you're going up against the better teams in the sport. Even at the time, Jimmy Garoppolo, early on in the game, that was when he hurt himself. And then, going up against Justin Herbert, as they did the week before, out in LA. But, the Dolphins, their season is starting to slip. 8-3, and three, now 8-6. and six. And we talked about this three weeks ago, after that soft underbelly of the schedule, that this was going to be a critical point of the season, knowing that they were 8-3 and three and they had these three games on the road against big-time opponents. San Francisco, Chargers, and even the Bills where the Bills are now the winners of the AFC East, still have the one seed tied with Kansas City, who had to sweat out a game in overtime against the Texans of all teams. And I'll just leave it at that. But we'll see what the Dolphins are going to do here in the days and weeks to come because they have a Christmas Day matchup against the Packers, which should be a win. Packers are playing tonight against the Rams Monday night after a bye. Then they have to go to New England before the Jet game at the end of the season. So it's do or die for this. Dolphin team at this moment because as much as they played well in the early part of the season and as they got to week 12 at 8-3, now it's do or die for Mike McDaniel, the coach, Tua Tagovailoa, and the rest of the team as they try to get themselves into the postseason. And if they don't make it to the postseason, it will be just an utter disaster of a season for the Dolphins. I don't care how you want to slice it. Oh, they played well. Oh, we overachieved. Oh, we did this. We did some good things. But if they missed the postseason altogether, no. I'm not going to accept that. And I'm sure a lot of the Dolphin fans who are dying for their team to at least get to the postseason are feeling the same way. So that's all I'm going to say there. And as far as Bradley Chubb in the game, Chubb had two tackles, one solo. I mean, that's all you need to know. Where is this guy when the money's on the line? He signed a big-time contract at the beginning, or not the beginning of the season, when he got traded there on November 1st. And the Dolphins... Newly minted him, not only with the fresh New Jersey, but also with the five-year, $100 million contract. And what has he done since he's been there? Two sacks. And none in the game against Buffalo the other night when they absolutely needed it. So that's all you need to know about the Dolphins and where they stand at this point of the season. I know earlier I mentioned about Tampa, and they did lose yesterday to the Bengals. They were actually up 17-0 in the game, and they lost. 
Could you believe that? That's how bad it is in Tampa right now. And I don't know if you want to pin it all on Tom Brady. And I understand his numbers at the end of the day look good. Over 300 yards, three touchdowns, two interceptions. But he also had a couple of fumbles. One that he lost and did not have a good game. Let's call it as we see it. But the Bengals, with their win yesterday and a very good performance, them coming back from that 17-point deficit, first time in Tom Brady's career, he's blown a 17-0 lead. He was 89-0 in games where he at least had a 17-0 lead. So look at that for what it's worth. But for the Bengals, with their win and with the Ravens losing in Cleveland on Saturday, and that was a game that was all field goals until the very end, and you knew that the Browns in their first game with Deshaun Watson, and not that he lit the world on fire by any stretch, so I'm not going to sit here and say that, oh, this was all on the Brown offense and Deshaun Watson finally playing his first home game as a member of the Browns where his first two games back from the suspension was on the road. So again, 18 for 28 for 161 yards and one touchdown isn't anything that the fantasy footballers are going to love. But they did win the game and the Ravens now have to wonder whether or not, even with a tough schedule by the Cincinnati Bengals because they have to go to New England which is not going to be easy it's going to be a little tricky and I'm sure the taste in Bill Belichick's mouth is going to be there until Sunday so you know he's going to run his team hard this week then they have a Monday night matchup which is going to be capital E enormous January 2nd where Buffalo goes to Cincinnati and that could be for one seed when it's all said and done now I understand that the Chiefs have to lose another game along the way but As of right now, that's a huge game. And then they have to host Baltimore in the final game of the season. So it's not going to be an easy trajectory for the Bengals to win this division or even attain a one seed as they probably have the toughest schedule of anybody here in the NFL. I'm not going to get into Arizona and Denver. Why should I even bother with that? I'm not going to get into even Atlanta and New Orleans with New Orleans winning. And I understand they could have an outside shot to win a division. But please, am I really going to get into the Saints again? They got swept by the Buccaneers. But I wonder if there's a three-way tie, that'd be interesting. Because if you have Carolina, New Orleans, and you even have a four-way tie when you think about it. But I understand teams are going to cannibalize one another because the teams are going to have to play one another where the Tampa Bay, they're going to have to play Atlanta again. Obviously, they have to play Carolina again. And you would think that there's going to be one team that's going to be out on top or there could be a tie at the top of the division and then you have to deal with tiebreakers. So I don't think you could have all four teams have the same record at the end of the day. But even with those teams still a game behind the Buccaneers, I'm not going to get crazy about Atlanta and New Orleans. I can't take that seriously. I'm sorry, people. And then other than that, I think that pretty much wraps up your day yesterday, which was a wild, I thought the best day of the NFL season to date. I didn't mention Philadelphia-Chicago. Now, Philly... They are 13-1. They are cruising to a one seed. I believe they could clinch it as of next week if they haven't done so already because with the Niners, no, I would think they probably clinched. I get it that they probably have a tie, but they have to have another Viking loss, which doesn't make any sense because they beat the Vikings earlier this year. And I would think for all intents and purposes, because right, they're just two games ahead of them. So with a win or a Viking loss, they're going to have the one seed as I play this out off the top of my head. And Philly did what they did. Jalen Hurts, 315 yards in the air. I didn't really follow too much in this game. The Bears were no match for the Eagles. Justin Fields did not have a good game as well. I understand he ran a lot on the ground, but in the air, eh, a lot of that was pretty much a mop-up. Not to pound on Fields, 
But again, not what you'd want there to, although they were competitive, but the Eagles are pretty much in control of the game. And they are going to be your NFC one seed as the playoffs in that conference are going to have to go through Philadelphia, which was pretty much a formality when you think about it because they've been dominant all year long. And I would think Jalen Hurts has pretty much, I'm not going to say cemented his MVP award, but he is definitely the front runner when it comes to being the best player in the league. And who would have thought that at the start of the season that he would be the front runner to win the most valuable player in the NFL. Now as I take off the cleats, helmet, and shoulder pads to put on the high tops, I get to some NBA news and notes. And if you're a Laker fan, I know you got to be sick to your stomach because I've said this all along, not so much this year because the Lakers, they've been trying to dig out of a 2-10 and hole from the start of the year. And although they had their moments and it played well, but then whenever they take three or four steps forward, they take five or six steps back. And now with Anthony Davis out multiple weeks with a foot injury that he suffered against Denver... And it looked super innocent. It was a play that was on the left baseline where Jokic was guarding him. And as he got to the basket, he tried to go reverse. And it looked like he came up a little bit lame, but it didn't seem that damaging or didn't seem to be a move that he made where it was like, ooh, you had to avert your eyes. But he was hobbling up the court, had to leave the game, and now is going to be on the shelf here for multiple weeks. What is that? Three, four, six, eight? Who knows, but to me, this Laker team, and this goes back to last year, I get you could say LeBron, you could say Westbrook, whatever, but it is all contingent on Anthony Davis being healthy. LeBron at his age, although he's superhuman, but he can only do so much. Davis is an inside-outside guy. He can shoot from the outside. We know how dominant of a player he is, as evidenced by some of the games that he's had here over the last month. The 55-point game against the Wizards. He's had just tremendous performances, even against the Celtics. A few nights ago where he was, what, 37 and 12? Well, this was actually last week, six nights ago. He was 37 and 12. We know that when all is right with his physical health, he's one of the top five players in the sport. And now that he's going to be out for some time, and with the Lakers trying to find their way in a Western Conference, this is going to be a huge blow to where, not to say they're going to be out to sea, because we don't know when he's going to come back, But this is a major blow for a team that was trying to get themselves back to any relevancy. And we all know they're going to be relevant because of LeBron and because they are the Lakers. Uh, What more can you say? But that's a loss that could be damaging to any type of hopes, even if they try to make it to the 7 through 10 seed as a play-in tournament participant. So that's something we'll have to monitor to see how long that's going to be for the Laker star forward. And speaking of Jokic, did you see this game last night against the Hornets? I understand it's Charlotte, so can you get that geek up over it? But anytime you go for 40, 27, and 10, which was comparable in the same sentence as Will Chamberlain once upon a time, then you know he did something great. And Jokic, we all know, back-to-back, two-time MVP. We know that he's the guy that's going to stir the drink there in Denver, even with the supporting cast that he has on the Nuggets. But for Jokic to have that type of game, we know how great of a player he is. We know he's an MVP But that is a stat line that you rarely see in the sport. To have a triple-double, but to have 40 over 25 rebounds, 10 assists. Kudos to you, my guy. He has been phenomenal here over the course of the last two years plus. So give it up to him. One thing I didn't mention, I know this is a team that's not on anybody's radar. But Cade Cunningham, who was obviously the top pick of the draft in 2021. Out for the rest of the year as he has to have season-ending 
surgery to his left leg, his shin in particular. So that's a tough blow for a young Piston team that's trying to find their way, that's trying to make a name with a bunch of young players on their squad. And not having Cunningham, obviously, is going to be a huge blow to that organization. But as far as the rest of the NBA as it's constituted, the Nets have played well. I talked about this the other day. They now won six in a row, including that Kyrie buzzer beater against Indiana on Friday, that three-pointer at the end. And again, not really heroic because the game was tied, but it is Kyrie, and he's known to make those shots a la Game 7 of the NBA Finals in 2016. But the Nets have played well. The Knicks have played well. Here's two. Think about this. Seven in a row, ten and they were 10-13, and 13, and now they're 17-13. and 13. But I'm sure it's going to go the other way at some point, but give it up. Knicks have played well. They're now in the top six is where you want to be. You don't want to be anywhere near the playing tournament. But again, we still have 52 games to go. So plenty of basketball to be played there. And now the Celtics have actually taken a notch back as they've lost four of their last five. And can you even believe they lost back-to-back games to the Orlando Magic? Orlando. In which Al Horford got a $25,000 fine for a low blow there in a game on Friday night. But... For the Celtics now to lose 4-5, to five, their first tough stretch of the year, but back-to-back to the Magic at home, that is alarming. Now, I don't know what's gone on there in the last few days. And again, that was a Friday-Sunday, so it wasn't back-to-back nights where you could say, all right, but coming back from the West Coast, they still had a few days to acclimate themselves. And generally, when teams go on the West Coast, especially East to West, I know it could be tricky because as much as they could say, ah, we're back home from a long West Coast trip, usually that first game is always tricky But here it is, even against the Magic, the lowly Magic, and give it up, they've actually won six in a row, so I guess maybe this streak could mean something to a young Magic team, but still, not a good job by the Celtics losing those two games and having a scenario to where, for the first time in a long time, they're just a half game back in the one seed in the Eastern Conference. And then out West, do I even need to get into some of this stuff? We've talked about the Lakers, Warriors, they're outside of the top 10 looking in. And a lot of the teams out there have cooled off a little bit. Although the Pelicans, they've taken a step back. They were number one there for about 10 days or so. Memphis, who I know John Morant was cursing at an official and had, I'm sure he's going to get fined. I don't think a fine has come down as of yet. But considering he was tossed out of a game because an official had cursed at him and actually questioned the integrity of the ref. So you know there's going to be a big fine coming. I don't think it's been handed down as of yet, but that's the latest there with Memphis. And that's pretty much your NBA in a nutshell. With the NHL, quickly, I know they want to expand to an 84-game schedule to add two more games because of the way the game and the schedule is broken down. You have the 16 teams out west, so let's say the Islanders. I'll use them as an example as I lace up my skates. So the Islanders are going to play the west 32 times. Obviously, 16 teams, one home, one away. That's a given. In the Atlantic Division, eight teams there. They're going to play the 32 games there. Or really, I should take that 24 games. They're going to play three games there. So 32 from the West. 24, three games each out of the eight teams in the Atlantic. That's 24. That's 56, which leaves 26 left. So out of the seven division opponents, when you break that down, most of them are going to be three-game Season series as evidence as the Islanders and Rangers will play on Thursday in their third matchup of the year. And it's actually going to be their final matchup, if you can believe that, of the 
2022-2023 season. So by adding the two more games, they'll be able to make it an even 28 to where the seven division opponents will have 28 games. Do you like that? I don't. It makes it a season a little bit longer. I understand it's two games. It's not four, six, or eight. And I get it that they want to have that balance in the division to where you play at least four games against your division opponents. I wish that they could maybe take one of the games away from the Atlantic division opponent. The West, I can understand because you want to have the Western Conference guys like Connor McDavid, Nathan McKinnon, the stars out in the West, Kirill Kaprizov, come to play in the opposing arena out East at least one time. So that I can understand. But the other division, do we need to see a team like Detroit come in two times a year or maybe even just once depending on the rotation I get it I don't like it but I understand why they're going to do it I don't know if that's going to be implemented next year but that's the one big news coming out of the NHL as far as just news about the league itself when we go through some of the other things real quick remember in the last month I talked about how the Bruins have played well at home and how they're at the top of the league with the Devils well the Devils have come crashing back to earth. In fact, even below that, as hell is starting to freeze over with their torrid start, they've lost five in a row. And not only that, have they lost the grip of the President's Trophy, which does that really matter or care at the end of the day? No. But the Hurricanes and the Rangers have played well to the point where the Hurricanes have actually tied the Devils in the Metropolitan Division and the Rangers are just three back. Hurricanes have won five in a row. The Rangers have won six in a row to get out of their early season malaise. Actually, seven in a row. Did I say six in a row? Rangers have won seven in a row. So they're hot as a pistol. So that's what's happened there in the Metropolitan. So the Devils have some company there where they were pretty much all alone there for the last month or so. You also have Chris Letang. Speaking of the Metropolitan Division, we know that the Penguins have played well. They did lose the other night to the Hurricanes, the aforementioned, as they remain hot in that division. But with Chris Letang scoring Thursday night against the Florida Panthers, his first goal after coming back from that stroke, his third game back, so good for him as the Penguins move closer to the top of the Metropolitan. And then you had Mitch Marner, the Maple Leaf forward, who had a 23-game point-scoring streak, franchise record, actually the longest in eight years in the NHL, maybe seven years, if I take a look real quick. Uh, Actually, yes, that was the longest such streak in seven years. That got snapped Thursday night against the Rangers as they lost at the Garden there on Thursday. So the NHL moving along. That's pretty much your hot and cold teams in the NHL. Let's see. I'll take a quick look there at the standings. Yes, we know what's happening with the Hurricanes and Rangers. Let's see what's going on out west. When we look at some of these hot teams, I know that the Islanders are playing Colorado tonight. So the Islanders who are on a West Coast trip on their own right. They played in that small arena out in Arizona, although they beat the Golden Knights, which was good there on Saturday, but they'll conclude against Colorado, which remember earlier this year, they had a three-goal come-from-behind win against the Stanley Cup champion Avalanche. But as we take a look to see what else is going on in the sport, yeah, Tampa's also played well. They've won five in a row. You had a lot of teams here streaking over the course of the last week or so. The... Minnesota Wild have won five straight. NHL, as you know, ebbs and flows. You wonder if the Rangers now will get their, themselves on track 
as we move forward. Same for the Hurricanes. A lot of people thought the Hurricanes were going to be a big-time team this year, especially after what they did last year, even though they lost some key players. Vincent Trocek, one in particular, to the Rangers. But the NHL continues to march along, as we all know. We'll continue to keep my eyes peeled for that. But lastly, I want to wrap up here with Major League Baseball as the hot stove should really start to cool off now. One big piece or two big pieces are off the market. One being Dansby Swanson, the last of the shortstops. As we know with Carlos Correa, Xander Bogarts, etc. Now you have Dansby Swanson going to Chicago to be a part of the Cub roster to see what they could do to turn their franchise and fortunes around. Seven years, $177 million for Swanson. Swanson's finally coming to his own. He's finally the player that he once was drafted back in 2015 as the number one pick overall. And he had a lot of lean years even after the trade from Arizona to Atlanta. But he certainly picked it up here over the last couple of years and scored a big-time contract, and rightfully so. He had a big year there for Atlanta. And now he goes to the north side of Chicago to play for the Cubs. And speaking of former Chicago players... Carlos Rodon, who is lastly with the San Francisco Giants, but former Chicago White Sox, he signs a six-year, $162 million deal with the Yankees. And you could put a big, giant question mark around it only because 14-8, and 288 ERA this past year with the Giants, 178 innings pitched, which is a career high in 31 starts. I hate to say it, people, but those are the stats of a guy that was playing in his walk year. Quote, unquote. So, this could be a case of that. He had a bad elbow injury the year before where he was pretty much put on hold down the stretch. Did not pitch a lot. And had to wonder whether or not he was going to be effective. I believe that was his final year in Chicago as a member of the White Sox. That was the, yes, the one year where they went to the postseason and lost to Houston in the divisional series. And Rodon, who, like I said, last year 14 and 8, on top of that was 13 and 5 in that final year in Chicago. So the last two years look good, both all star years. But like I said, walk year, a questionable elbow, getting the big bucks. And you're going to bank on what he's done here in his last two years as him getting that big payday and putting him in, I would think, as the number two starter right behind Garrett Cole in the Yankee rotation. All I'll say is good luck. He's an upgrade. And I'm sure if he's healthy, he's going to pitch well. But that's the big question. If he's healthy. And he's going to be 30, I believe, by opening day. In fact, he just turned 30 two weeks ago. To be specific, nine days on December 10th. And then you had some other small signings to go around the horn. I know the Mets signed a backup catcher, Omar Narvaez, formerly the Brewers. How many more catches is this team going to get? They already have James McCann, who I'm sure they're going to try to pawn off for 20 cents on the dollar. You have Tomas Nito. Francisco Alvarez could be your catcher. And then you bring in Narvaez. I mean, what are we doing here, Steve Cohen? We just want to sign in anybody and everybody to the roster? Please, I'll be a backup, whatever you want to call, for a million bucks. Nice, cool mill. Direct deposit right into my account. Sign me up. Also, Andrew Benintendi, he was the one Yankee player that they lost as they gained Rodon. Benintendi, left-handed stick, goes to the White Sox, five years, $75 million. 
Now the Yankees, they're going to have to find a left-handed bat. It can't be all Anthony Rizzo here. So Benintendi was an outfielder, and the Yankees, gonna they're going to need a left-handed stick. Who knows if Aaron Hicks is going to be your left fielder next year. I would doubt it because Bader is going to be your center fielder. So by them losing Benintendi, I'm going to say it's a big loss because Benintendi, not trying to make him out to be Wade Boggs, but he's a guy with a good stick, could play that short porch in Yankee Stadium, and also is a good glove in the outfield. That's going to be a signing that the Yankees could miss there, and who knows if he was going to be part of the budget or if it was too high, whatever, but maybe too many years. So he goes to the south side of Chicago, and let's see how that fares for the former Red Sox and Royal. J.D. Martinez signs a one-year deal with the Dodgers to be a DH. No big whoop there. I guess he's going to replace Cody Bellinger as far as a bat in the lineup. Speaking of a former Dodger, Justin Turner goes to Boston. You could say that's a pseudo-trade where Turner now will probably play first base for the Red Sox. He's not going to play third with Devers there, and he's certainly not going to play short. Maybe he also becomes that part-time DH as well as first base. I think the Red Sox bought out Hosmer. I got to double-check that. I don't think I read that properly. If I take a look at Eric Hosmer real quick, remember he went in the trade there in the middle of the summer after Juan Soto went to the San Diego Padres. But Hosmer, I don't even know. Yes, he is actually designated for assignment. So with three years left on his contract, I don't know if anybody's going to pick him up. So it's quite possible that the Justin Turner acquisition could be parlayed for him to play first base. That remains to be seen, obviously, a lot of time between now and pitchers and catchers. And then Michael Brantley re-upped with the Astros one year, which is very good. First time in a long time that he's had these shoulder ailments come up. And with one more year in a lineup that they brought in Jose Abreu, we know the cast of characters out in Houston to see if they could run it back to defend their World Series champion. Chip, why not? So I'm sure he's going to play a little bit of left field. I'm sure he's also going to DH. So to me, that was a good signing for an Astro team that is looking to repeat. And other than that, people, that's what I got. A jam-packed, fun-filled podcast comes to a close as we get into the Christmas week. Thank you so much for taking your time out to carve a few minutes or hopefully a whole hour to listen to what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. Your participation is never taken for granted. And please, if you could do so, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review just so we can increase the visibility of this podcast. It will go a long way, people. So I would greatly appreciate if you could do that. If you want to hit me up with a question, comment, criticism, praise, or suggestion, you could do so on my social media accounts or by email at the following. The J Reels Podcast on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, J Reels One Just a Number on Twitter, or the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com, the old-fashioned way via email. Hit me up and I'll be more than happy to follow up. And then lastly, to contribute to this endeavor, if you could go to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy. Dot com slash the J Reels podcast. Whatever you want to put forth goes 100% to this endeavor, to the upkeep of the website, the production of this podcast, the equipment to make this experience that much more enjoyable, that much more crystal clear from this microphone into your earbuds or speakers. Because whether you do or do not know, this is why I love to talk about people. It's in the blood, it's in the DNA sports. I can't get enough of it. If you couldn't tell from this podcast or previous podcast, whether it's your first time, 10th time, 100th time, well, I'm sure if it's your 100th time, I'm sure you're back for a reason, and I thank you for that. But people, 
This is what I love to discuss. Dissecting. Divulging. Disseminating. My thoughts. Opinions. Analysis. Critiques. Praises. On anything and everything that happens. On the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, directed, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to Southeast to South Center to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>